JAT Chat, presented by the Journal of Athletic Training, the official journal of the National Athletic Trainers Association. I'm Dr. Shelby Baez, an assistant professor in the Department of Exercise and Sports Science at UNC Chapel Hill, and the co-host of JAT Chat with Dr. Kara Radzak. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Drs. Jeff Dryben, Matt Harkey, and Haley Root. Dr. Dryben is a member of the Special and Scientific Staff at Tufts Medical Center. Dr. Harkey is an assistant professor in the Department of Kinesiology at Michigan State University. And Dr. Root is an assistant professor in the Bioscience Corps at Northern Arizona University. They are co-authors of Preventing Osteoarthritis After an Anterior Cruciate Ligament Injury, an Osteoarthritis Action Alliance Consensus Statement. And I also want to acknowledge that I'm also an author on this consensus statement. So I'm really excited to be able to talk about this today. So thank you all so much for joining me. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to start with a really broad question for our listeners. Uh, what do we know about ACL injury and its association with the development of osteoarthritis? Matt, do you want to get started on that one? Sure. Um, I, I think there's... Um, just a large body of evidence that shows that individuals that have had an ACL injury and gone on to get an ACL reconstruction are at high risk of developing osteoarthritis. That about a third of individuals present with some structural signs on x-ray of osteoarthritis uh, within a 10 years following that initial injury and surgery. So these, these athletes that we're seeing kind of uh, high school athletes, college athletes that we're seeing following knee injury and knee surgery are at a fairly high risk of development it fairly soon after they're in the athletic training room. And I think too, it's worth putting yourself in their shoes a little bit. Like if you think about it, you have a 20 year old who tears her ACL. And if the data suggests that she has a one in three chance of having um, symptoms and potentially radiographic disease within the next decade, that would suggest by the time she's 30, she could have a good chance of having osteoarthritis. And we know that in this younger population, when they have osteoarthritis, that it has a significant impact on their quality of life. Because think about it yourself. If you were to be 30, running around, trying to work, you know, imagine needing to run out onto the field and help somebody off the field. That's going to be challenging with a painful knee. Imagine then going home and potentially needing to take care of a parent or a child and also needing to put load on that joint, and then also think about how it could potentially impact doing the activities that you really enjoy doing. So it's not really surprising that it can have a major impact on a person's quality of life for the majority of their lifetime. So we're seeing younger people presenting with essentially, I'll say, these older knees for lack of a better explanation. Um, along those lines, uh, I, I want us to just take a second just to define osteoarthritis. How do we define osteoarthritis in this patient population? Uh, part of this is also alluding to potentially some of Dr. Harkey's work in early OA as well. Um, but can you just give us a little bit of uh, context on what is OA really in this population? When you think of osteoarthritis, there really is this kind of disease component and this illness component that a lot of times people think of the disease component, which is more of the kind of structural outcome. But in most research studies, a lot of times kind of clinically that people are wanting to define osteoarthritis based on kind of what their structure looks like on x-ray. That having kind of joint space narrowing on x-ray is kind of how you're defining that someone has the disease of osteoarthritis. Um, 
but there's a lot showing that, that those kind of X-ray changes are fairly later stage changes that are happening to the joint. That in this population specifically, we're really missing out on a key piece of looking at that those earlier changes either within the joint to the person overall. That if we're ignoring kind of some of the earlier signs and focusing just on those later X-ray changes, but I think a, a bigger push that's that's coming kind of more recently is figuring out ways to define OA illness and trying to, and that's more looking at kind of the, the patient's symptoms or kind of the patient experience of osteoarthritis. And it's a tricky thing to define because these individuals following knee injury and knee surgery are inherently going to have symptoms and have pain that this transition between this pain being attributable to their injury and surgery and when it's potentially early signs of osteoarthritis is um, something that we, we still don't quite know when that happens. But uh, I think the more and more that comes out of these patients are presenting with persistent symptom changes following injury and surgery that are likely kind of those precursors to developing kind of osteoarthritis overall. So from that clinical perspective, it's more than just what we see on x-ray. It's also thinking about potentially the symptomology associated with these, this patient population. Um, so clearly, it seems like there's a, a need for us to try and reduce the development of OA in this population. So uh, along those lines, what was the catalyst for the development of this particular consensus statement? And can you tell us a little bit about what some of the goals were for it? Yeah, so the catalyst for this in some ways was when the National Public Health Agenda for Osteoarthritis was updated in 2020, uh, the Osteoarthritis Action Alliance had submitted it to the National Athletic Trainers Association for review for endorsement. And one of the feedback that we received from the NATA was, it's a great document, but there's very little within the document about what to do for people after an injury in that secondary prevention space. And our response to them was, while there may, might be a consensus within the field for what to do for these patients, there's not enough high-quality evidence for inclusion in the national public health agenda. And then after that exchange, it's kind of got us thinking that perhaps there would be a value of developing a consensus statement to represent what we believed was the expert opinion in the field on what to do for these patients. Yeah, and, and one of the things that was, um, uh, again, as I mentioned, I was part of this consensus statement, um, seeing the interdisciplinary, like multidisciplinary approach to um, developing this consensus statement, just wanted to get a little bit more information. How did you go about putting together this this task force? And, and then along those lines, what steps did you have to take to create uh, some of these recommendations after you got this task force together? Well, I can tell you how we got the group together. And then Perhaps Haley or Matt can kind of take on what we actually went through to draft it. But what, the way we started was in the summer of 2020, we, we sent out an email to the members of the IOA Action Alliance Steering Committee and the Primary Prevention or Injury Prevention Task Group, which is uh, a group that Haley and I are both involved with. And these two groups include members of AMSSM, Arthritis Foundation, Osteoarthritis Research Society International, U.S. Bone and Joint Initiative, NATA, a lot of the organizations that you expect. And we encouraged all those individuals to also share the email with anybody that they thought may be interested. 
And so we ended up with 29 members, um, 24 of whom represented 18 institutions in the United States. We also had four OA Action Alliance staff members helping us with the process. And we had one member from Finland. And ultimately what the task group ended up with was a very diverse group of athletic trainers, physical therapists, psychologists, orthopedic surgeons, and sports medicine physicians. Um, and then in the late summer of 2020 is when we had our first meeting and started to develop our process. And I'll hand it over to Haley or Matt. Yeah, so for that second, just as a reminder, that second piece is after you got this task force together, what steps did you take to start to create the recommendations that are in uh, the, the manuscript? Yeah, I, I think from there, it was really just first establishing like what exactly it is we were doing because we were coming in with this idea of let's create this consensus statement of preventing osteoarthritis after an ACL injury. And I think you alluded to it that we have all of these different pieces, very interdisciplinary, that we realized that we really wanted to have this kind of comprehensive approach of what are these different aspects that likely need to go into to preventing osteoarthritis. And I think the first part was just kind of establishing like what were the overall goals of what we wanted to do and then like identify various topic areas that we wanted to kind of cover with the recommendations. And then from there just um, forming little subgroups where we kind of paired off and started kind of drafting and organizing the information that we wanted to include in each of these different um, kind of topic areas or uh, the specific kind of goals of the consensus statement. Yeah, and I'll just add on. So, you know, with the diversity of the group, everyone has kind of a different uh, clinical or research interest background. So the subgroups were kind of around education or the behavioral component, the psychological component with rehab, um, actual rehab strategies themselves or other like prevention strategies, um, technology. So everybody kind of had a, a different niche to dive a little bit deeper in to come up with more comprehensive recommendations. I don't know if it was Jeff or whoever then had to combine all of the different pieces written by different people and very different aspects and then combine it all into one coherent statement. And then what I would add after that point, what we did was we sent it back to the whole task group, including members who were not part of the initial writing phase to kind of get their input on the uh, document to keep sure that they agreed since they had a fresh set of eyes with what was being presented within the consensus statement. And then ultimately the entire task group agreed that it was ready for submission. And then we also saw approval from the OA Action Alliance Steering Committee. So with um, getting a consensus ac across the group, how did you identify like consensus for a particular recommendation? So we did it with um, three rounds of voting and we defined a prior ahead of time that we wanted to have at least 80% of the task group agree that a recommendation was appropriate. And during the first two rounds, what individuals could do was they could say, I don't agree with this recommendation, here's why. And that would give people some opportunities to revise the text and make it to try and win that vote back. And then 
ultimately, some people would still decide not to support a recommendation. And in that case, after the third round, what we did was ask those people who voted against the recommendation if they wanted to include a paragraph or two within the document that kind of explained the rationale for not voting. And if we had more than one dissenting opinion, then we worked with them to kind of harmonize it into one or two paragraphs so that um, there's an opportunity for readers to kind of see, you know, why didn't people vote for this recommendation? And hopefully that can spark some new ideas. Uh, so up to this point, we've talked a lot about the development of the consensus statement. So I want to transition us to talking about the content of the consensus statement. So what were some of the strongest recommendations that were supported by the task group um, to reduce OA after a sale injury? Sure. So um, the kind of subgroup that I worked more specifically on, we were um, kind of talking about the parallel between primary injury prevention programs, um, which we typically talk about. So um, we have the Remain in the Game app from the OA Action Alliance, um, but then other programs internationally like FIFA 11 or the PEP out of Santa Monica. Some of those programs are really designed for primary injury prevention, but we also talked about um, how they could work in a secondary injury prevention um, side of things. So the recommendations we went through, um, they're pretty well supported, but a lot of the current um, a lot of the current studies, uh, the secondary injury prevention side of things are kind of sub-analyses right now, like it hasn't been a primary purpose in some of the literature. But you know, we're seeing good benefits with even after injury, people are able to kind of maintain those rehab benefits um, or those rehab gains that they make with strength or, or range of motion or neuromuscular control. Um, so we kind of focused some set, subset of recommendations around trying to continue to promote um, preventive training programs even after a primary injury. Um, so that was some of them. Uh, some of the other stronger ones, I think, were around kind of the educational piece, um, trying to um, empower end users, whether that's caregivers, the patients themselves, on kind of decision making, um, helping them be a part of their process. And there's so much breadth in kind of who is developing knee osteoarthritis in terms of like, age, severity of the progression, um, when you're intervening with some kind of um, treatment. Um, so there's a lot of leeway for what is user-centered design and how do we tailor our strategies for these individuals. Um, so we had some recommendations around just educational suggestions um, and empowering those decision makers and then also trying to help clinicians who are interacting with those individuals on what's the best way to go about advising or providing resources and helping them make the best decision for themselves. Um, so that was kind of, those were pretty strongly supported recommendations. And then, so, Matt, you, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Jeff. I was just going to uh, ask Matt to comment too about the fact that there was almost, a, I think, unanimous support for the idea of monitoring patients. And Matt, you kind of helped write that section. Do you want to kind of address how we should be monitoring because I think everybody thinks it, but how many of us actually are doing what a comprehensive approach? Yeah, I think it just kind of goes back to it's just a, a smaller piece of this overall kind of what we're saying that we need this. These recommendations provide this very comprehensive look at all of these different aspects, whether it's education, kind of technology, uh, various interventions and different kind of strategies to help prevent that 
um, the area that I had focused on in my subgroup was more of how do we actually monitor and when do we monitor these these patients? But again, it kind of goes back to that comprehensive piece that we we need to look at items such as kind of the patient reported outcomes, the illness issues with these individuals to understand one, just how much pain do they have? How are they doing? How physically active are they? What type of symptoms are they having? But then also kind of the structure piece as well, that um, looking, again, looking at the disease piece to understand kind of just what are different pathologies that are happening that are indicating potentially earlier signs of osteoarthritis, as well as um, various physical function metrics, um, functional performance, hot tests, strength, just trying to really provide this kind of comprehensive list of different things that can be assessed to really understand and get a global picture of what's happening to these patients. And it's nice too that there was two tables in the document, one, and they both kind of say like, here's recommended outcomes to use. And some of them we acknowledge are more research-based and some of them are more clinically friendly. Yeah, Jeff, that was gonna be my follow-up question was just how would a uh, rehab specialist go about measuring some of these different um, outcomes throughout the, the process? So it sounds like in the document, there's some specific recommendations that are both evidence-driven, evidence-based and potentially clinically recommended. There, there are, there's a nice table in there and it's a, it's a comprehensive. So it, it, there might be several outcomes suggested for like measuring one thing. It's more to give examples, but it, it does acknowledge when, you know, sometimes you see people recommend doing something. You're like, I can't do that in the clinic. And it is marked in the tables when something is more of a research tool versus something that could be used in the clinic. Awesome. Yeah, and we, so yeah, we also provide a, a good breakdown of different patient patient reported outcomes and surveys that can be used but uh, it's, a, it's a long list and it, the intent isn't that everyone should assess all of these but I think more here are different things that you can you can assess and things that can be used um, to assess, assess all of these different aspects so if, if a clinician or a researcher is more interested in looking at kind of a, a specific domain of, of symptom that hear different ways and the evidence for that. So it sounds like a comprehensive document. I, I think uh, maybe the, the friendly, the nice part about the consensus recommendations is that within kind of every umbrella recommendation, there's a lot of clinician freedom of what that looks like for your setting, for your patients that you see most frequently. Um, so maybe that'll drive some people crazy that it's not a black and white, this is what you need to do. But I think, again, because there's so much variation in what a patient is going to look like and prefer um, that, you know, the, the recommendations are meant to be flexible um, and to give, again, just the clinicians a little bit more autonomy in how they measure certain things, but just tracking and suggesting that they do measure certain components. And I think too, like the nice thing with this document is I hope that a lot of the people that read most of the recommendations are going to be like, no, duh, like this is what we should be doing, you know? And that is a sign that it's a good consensus statement, right? Because this is supposed to represent what the experts in the field think we should be doing to achieve our goal of long-term wellness after an injury. 
So this is putting into paper what a lot of us might be having our thoughts all over the place and presenting it in a, hopefully a nice tight package for everybody. So we talked a lot about some of the strongest recommendations. What were some of the areas that were included in the consensus statement that may not have the uh, strongest literature support that were included based off of clinical or personal experiences? I think um, some of the ones, so we had one recommendation that did not achieve consensus. We had 16 recommendations. One fell one vote short. That was for inclusion of cognitive behavioral counseling as part of uh, the treatment process after an ACL injury. Um, and I think the other psychological recommendations, while they achieved consensus, they did have some dissenting opinions. And I think some of the concerns that I saw from the in that dissenting opinion paragraphs is belief that there is potential for the psychological interventions to have a lot of benefit for patients, but that we also need to see a lot more evidence within this patient population to justify um, their inclusion. And I think that should encourage a lot of people to potentially do research in that area, but also weigh the pros and cons of trying it, right? Like a lot of these may have a high benefit, low risk outcome ratio. And so it might be worth trying it and let the clinician decide if they think that it's going to work for them. And hopefully over the next five years, we'll see more evidence and we'll get stronger consensus on those recommendations. And we'll be able to tweak them a little bit. But I also think that's part of the strength of this consensus statement is we weren't just focused on the physical well-being of a patient. We were trying to conceptualize the well-being of the patient overall. So it seems that the consensus statement was uh, attempting to take this biopsychosocial approach to patient management which uh, I'm biased there, but I certainly appreciate that, that outlook on uh, the consensus statement. So how can other researchers and clinicians get involved with the task force? So the OA Action Alliance is going to continue to develop resources related to the consensus statement. We do have plans to release infographics. We're already in the process of getting close to finalizing an infographic for providers. We will develop some others. We also want to develop consumer information and educational resources for patients, um, as well as educational resources for healthcare professionals and to have conference presentations to healthcare professionals. We also hope to develop websites and possibly a mobile application um, related to the consensus statement. Um, and we also want to develop um, a white paper on how would you package all of these recommendations together in a coordinated care program where we're working with the different disciplines to implement these recommendations. And I think if people are interested in those type of initiatives, they can go to the OA Action Alliance um, website and reach out to the staff there, or they can email any of us and we'd be glad to uh, connect them with the task group and get them involved. And if the timing right now isn't the perfect time for somebody to get involved, then they can hop in when they feel they do have the time. And we keep people up to date on, you know, right now we're working on the infographic, but soon we'll be switching to educational resources. And somebody might say, that's what I really want to work on. And they can jump in and out based on what their preferences and interests are. So if any listeners are really feeling called to, to get part, to join the, uh, the consensus and statement, future consensus statements, infographics, et cetera, in the future, Go to OA Action Alliance uh, website or just email Dr. Dryden or Dr. Root or Dr. Harkey uh, to uh, potentially join uh, in the future. So just to end our, our podcast uh, for today, 
Uh, would you all mind providing potentially a take-home point about the paper for our listeners? What's something that you want to make sure that the listeners get from taking the time to listening uh, to the podcast today? I think it can seem like a lot going through the consensus statement of the different recommendations. But again, it's really meant to be what makes the most sense for you and your practice um, and some different suggestions of ways to get the same job done to achieve the same goal of measuring patient reported outcomes or integrating some psychosocial components into um, kind of your care plan. So I think, uh, you know, for, for my area in particular, like with the preventive training programs, and trying to get more information on kind of feasibility and adoption of different strategies. Um, there's just a lot of room for both clinicians and researchers to kind of continue this work and to get more information for stronger recommendations in the future. So I guess um, my take home points are there are a lot of ways to do the right thing um, and just start moving in this direction. Piggybacking off that is there is a lot in the consensus statement that I, I don't think it's something that you think that you should think that you need to do all of them at once at the same time to for this to start being effective. That the the consistent consensus statements are very, very broad that I would recommend, I mean, reading through them, but then like focusing on one or two to start with and seeing how that works and then kind of move move from there because I don't think you're going to be able to kind of implement and and do all of these different pieces at one time that I think kind of taking your time and instead of just seeing there's so many and get frustrated and just don't do anything I would just kind of take it slowly and kind of work your way into it and and move from there and I think one of the early steps to consider is think of reframe how you're thinking about um preserving a patient's well-being. You know, in sports medicine, we often talk about preserving a patient's well-being and uh, preventing long-term disease burden. And I think that starts day one after an injury of talking to our patients and get, starting to get them to think about how the injury impacts their life, but how also it's one knee or that's affecting them. They still have other avenues to pursue physical activity um, while they're recovering. And um, we need to encourage them to be physically active in ways that they are able to from day one on and to encourage a life of living with healthy health and wellness behaviors. And I think a lot of athletic trainers have probably gone through wellness classes and learned what a healthy living style is, but some of our athletes haven't had those opportunities. And so we need to spend more time focusing on the patient's long-term well-being um, regardless of the injury, after every injury, we should be thinking about how to preserve well-being for our patient population. And then I think, too, ensuring that our patients are making informed decisions and that they're part of the decision-making process and that they understand the pros and cons of each decision we make along the rehabilitation pathway and from day one to after even being cleared to play, what to look out for and what to report back to a healthcare professional that might not be the new normal um, and ensuring that they feel empowered to speak up and to let us know when something isn't what they want and to understand why we're making the decisions we're making throughout the process. Um, and hopefully having those discussions not once, like right the day after an injury when they're so focused on short term, but having that dialogue throughout the rehabilitation process 
will give them an opportunity to start thinking about it and thinking about how to set a good path for their well-being in the long term. From what I'm, what I'm hearing, it's not just about getting patients back to return to sport after ACL injury. It's about setting up, setting them up for uh, improving and maintaining quality of life throughout um, uh, their lifespan. Uh, so reframing it from just thinking about we got to get people back to sport, but thinking about how do we help them across the course of their life. Well, thank you all so much for joining me today. I really appreciate uh, having this conversation with you all. Um, and to our, our listeners, this article will be available free of charge by the Journal of Athletic Training. And I highly recommend everyone go and download the consensus statement in a future issue of the Journal of Athletic Training. Again, thank you all so much, and we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.